My name is Wayne, and I'm the lead pastor here at the Mustard Seed Church. And uh, we're continuing in our sermon series of doing what Jesus did. And this is our third week in this. We got 10 weeks of it. So it's a lot of doing what Jesus did over the spring. And this idea of doing what Jesus did, we said that there's three main goals of an apprentice to Jesus that we want to pursue. To be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and to do what he did. So we're in that third goal for this uh, next 10 weeks. And really, uh, we use the term apprenticeship to Jesus rather than discipleship because apprenticeship, you can really kind of understand what's happening within an apprenticeship. So real life, real world example, if you were going to culinary school to be a chef, right? You would be in the school learning how to cook and learning these different meals and learning how to, you know, chop stuff with a knife without losing a fingertip. And you'd probably be learning all that stuff, right? And the goal of that, like you're not training to be a chef and going to culinary school just so you could sit at home and know what Gordon Ramsay's talking about. Right? Would we agree? Like, that's not the reason for the training. The reason for the training is one day, gosh, you hope to be a chef and have your own kitchen and slicing and dicing and cutting and chopping and all this other good stuff, right? That's the whole reason for the, the apprenticeship journey of being a chef. And we're saying that the same is true for me and for you with our apprenticeship to Jesus. Like we, we talk about the things that Jesus did, we sing about what he did, we read about what he did, but the invitation to you and to me is that as apprentices of Jesus, we do what he did. Is that making sense? Okay. And where this idea comes from, and we'll have it on the screen for you, is John 14, 12. And this is just our main scripture where we're going to land at over the next 10 weeks. Jesus says to his disciples, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And I love it because all of the theologians and scholars and all this stuff, they look at the second half and they will do even greater works than these. And they're like, oh, what's the greater works? You know, I think Jesus is actually more concerned about just actually doing the works that he does. And like the greater works and all that stuff is great and it'll come. But he's like, hey, whoever believes in me will do the things that I have been doing. And so this is where we get this idea of doing what Jesus did as apprentices to Jesus. So I want to start off our time this morning with a, with a recent statistic that I read. It came out in December of 2021. So honestly, just a few months ago, December 2021. And there was a study done that said that only 63% of Americans self-identify as Christians this year. And that mark has dropped from 75% 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, 75% of Americans would have said, hey, I identify as a Christian. Today, 10 years later, that's went from 75 to 63. A major drop in a 10-year period. They say that the declining number of Americans who say they're a Christian is offset by a growing number of people who call themselves atheists, agnostic, or people of no particular faith, or what they're categorizing as the nuns, the N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, right? The, nun, the nuns. And what they're saying is there's a growing number of nuns in our culture that they just, they don't, they don't claim to be anything or affiliate with anything. They're just kind of... Not atheist, agnostic, or a believer. They're just, 
sort of nothing. And so there's this growing number of nuns. And what they're saying is more and more we're finding ourselves in what they call a post-Christian culture. More and more a post-Christian culture. And Francis Schaeffer, who is a great Christian author and thinker, he says this. He says, ours is a post-Christian world in which Christianity, not only in the number of Christians, but in cultural emphasis and cultural result, is no longer the consensus of our society. Essentially what he's saying is that in the past, so much of our society and our culture was shaped around Christian values and Christian thinking and all this other stuff. So for I'll give you an example, I don't know how many years ago, but everything would be closed on Sunday. Remember that? If you were around at that time, right? You would wait and things would be closed on Sunday. And now the only thing closed on Sunday is Chick-fil-A. And it's the worst when you go to Chick-fil-A and they're closed. Gosh! But that's, what that's kind of what they're talking about is used to everything was structured around Christian values. And he said more and more uh, our society in a post-Christian world is no longer centered around these Christian values anymore. We're finding ourselves in a post-Christian culture. And what this means is at one point in time, just to give you a little bit of history, at one point in time the world was pre-Christian. So think Ireland and, uh, you know, there's pagan gods and there's these deities and spirits and, work, and there's sacrifices and there's slavery. And, there's all, and it's all totally pre-Christian culture, right? And then you have what you would call a society with a Christian culture mixed into it. And so this is where you have, gosh, everybody goes to church on Sunday and uh, everything's closed on Sunday. And then you have dry counties on Sunday and you, everything is shaped by a Christian influence, right? And now what they're saying is now we're in a pre-Christian culture to where that's no longer the case anymore for us. And this is the question that we're posed with this morning. Is how do we, right? I, I would imagine that most of us in here would identify as Christian. Maybe some of you are here and you're just like, hey, I'm checking the church out. I'm even checking this whole Jesus thing out. So maybe, maybe not so much, right? But for the most of us, we'd probably identify as Christian. This is the question is, how do we engage with people when they are moving further from God? How do we engage with people, connect with people, interact with people when they are moving further from God? Andy Crouch from his, uh, he had a writing called Cultural Making. And he says this, that there's four common historical postures of Christians that we take towards culture. One is condemning, right? You condemn the culture around you. You sort of retreat back into your home and you're like, hey, I don't have, I'm not having anything to do with the world or anybody of the world. One is critiquing to where you kind of sit in the corner and you just kind of wave your, th you know, you ever had somebody point your finger at you? You're like, ah, right? Critiquing the world. The other one is copying and consuming. And so what we have to wrestle with is how do we engage or interact or connect with a world that is moving further and further from God in a post-Christian culture? I believe as we get into the scriptures today, gosh, Jesus is going to show us some things about that, how it speaks to me and you. If you ever get a chance to sit down and read the Gospels of, or the biography of Jesus, you see this in his life. He's constantly interacting with people that nobody else interacts with. He's constantly engaging with people that uh, are, are people on the fringe. And so, for example, prostitutes, lepers, 
tax collectors, sinners, Gentiles, all throughout the gospel. This is what Jesus did. He engaged with people who were far from God. And I know for me, if I'm just being honest, if I'm just being vulnerable, can I do that up here? Can, cool? Okay. If I'm just being vulnerable, this can be a struggle for me. Engaging with people who are far from God. A lot of times it's a struggle because one, life is too busy. Because like, uh, the people that I engage with are just the people that are kind of around me. So most of you, right? My family. So that's mainly the people that I engage with and that I actually have, feels like I have time for. So it's hard to carve out time. But another struggle that I feel is there's pressure. When I hang out with people who are far from God, there's always this pressure of, man, I got to say the right Jesus thing. Man, I got to lead them to the Lord. I got to get them saved. You ever heard that before? Right? Yeah. There's a lot of pressure of like, man, when I leave from here, they need to pray this prayer. You know? So you're always like throwing Jesus into the mix with something, you know? So they're like, man, my coffee this week, I spilt it in my car. And you're like, well, Jesus can You know what I'm saying? It's like we're always trying to come at it with an angle and we end up turning people into projects. Because there's a lot of pressure around it to evangelize. You ever feel any of that? So that's just some of the struggles that I <laughs> wrestle with personally. And I wondered this morning if you can re- relate to some of those. That, gosh, you think, man, where do I have the time to hang out with people who are far from God? Or, man, you're like, man, maybe I do feel the pressure that when I hang out with, I know somebody who's far from God. There is this pressure to say the right thing, do the right thing, get them saved, whatever that looks like, right? Or maybe just for you, the struggle with hanging out with people who are far from God is you really don't want to connect with people like that. The language that they use, the jokes that they tell. Like I grew up working in oil and gas refineries and everybody cussed like a sailor, you know, myself included until I encountered the Lord. But I mean, that's like a rough atmosphere, a rough environment to be in. And you're like, man, I would rather not hang out with people like that. And so what you end up doing is this what you end up doing is you end up retreating. So rather than engaging and connecting, you end up retreating. Does any of that, does that relate to anybody or is it just me? The pressures, the time frame, the, oh man, the language, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but nonetheless, as we look at the life of Jesus as apprentices, we're called to do what he did. So how how might that look in our life today for me and you? What, this is my, this is my hope for this morning. I was like, Lord, would you just speak to us? What would you have for us? How could we do what you did and engage with the world around us that is moving further and further from God? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 9, chapter 9, verse 9, and uh, we're going to read it from there. What we love to do when we read the word is we stand together as we read. So would you stand with me? To give you an idea of why we do this is because we just want to honor the word of God and place ourselves under the word, right? Lord, would you speak to us from your word? That's the posture we're taking. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can be seated. So to give you a little context in this story of what's happening, uh, in the story, Matthew, the tax collector, is actually writing about his own come-to-Jesus moment. This is Matthew writing about Matthew, first-hand account of what happened when he met Jesus. And to give you an idea about tax collectors, uh, this is just some little, for those of you who are history buffs like myself, are there some in here? Wow, one. Oh, gosh. Dang. All right. Bear with me, all of you. So tax collectors were known as publicans, and they charged tolls and taxes on behalf of the Roman government. Tax collectors earned a profit by demanding a higher tax from people than they had prepaid to the Roman government. So to give you an example of what's happening here, there was a, a tax that uh, the people of Israel had to pay to the Roman government, which was somewhere around 50%, a 50% tax right off the top. Tax collectors could then add on top of that whatever other percentage that they would want that would be for themselves. And so imagine walking up to a tax collector booth thinking, hey, I'm paying my 50%. And Matthew tells you, you know what? Actually, it's 70% today. Doesn't that just hit you different? <laughs> it's 70% today. If you try to say something or make a ruckus, he has the Roman military behind him and you can't do nothing about it. And he says, you know what? It's 80% today. This was tax collectors in their day and age. Jewish religious, Jewish religious leaders particularly despised tax collectors, regarding them as ceremonially unclean and excluding them from religious activities. So they couldn't go into the temple and offer sacrifices or none of that. They had to stay away from the temple, stay away from God's people, and all they could do was essentially just collect tax, hang out with other tax collectors, and go back to the house. Because they were just ceremonial unclean and nobody else wanted to hang out with them. This is why the word tax collectors was lumped in with the word sinners as well. This is somebody that nobody else wanted anything to do with. Do you kind of feel that? Nobody wanted anything else to do with them. And this is what is radical with what Jesus is doing. Like for us today as we read about tax collectors and sinners... It's so otherworldly to us and not really a big deal that we're like, oh, that's cute. Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. That's so sweet of him, right? It's almost like we get these Bible stories and they turn into something else for us. But in their day and age, man, this was radical with what Jesus was doing. So to make it more relatable to us for our day, let's think about somebody at the bottom of our society or somebody on the fringe in our society. So for an example, I'll just give you a couple examples. Imagine Jesus spending time with a known rapist. Having breakfast. A cup of tea together. Imagine Jesus sitting at the table uh, eating lunch with a kidnapper. Or having dinner with a known pedophile. 
Imagine Jesus saying, hey, come sit at the table with me. Even for some of us today, we probably are like, oh, really? Damn him? This would have been the effect of, in their day and age when it says that Jesus sat with tax collectors and sinners. And this context and this story leads us into our passage for today. A couple of things we want to highlight from the passage that speaks to you and to me on how we engage with people from far from God. The first point that we have is that God is on the move. God is on the move. As we read the text, we see that Jesus moves towards Matthew and says, follow me. We see again that Jesus moves towards Matthew and they're, ha- they're at the house together and they're having dinner with one another. It's just this picture of God on the move. And all throughout scripture, we see this theme of God on the move. In the beginning with Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil and uh, their eyes are open and they see that, gosh, they've sinned against God and actually go and hide from God. And when you read this story, it says that God moves towards them and says, hey, where are you? God on the move. Abraham, God calls him out from the land that was just pagan in culture and he calls him out from his father's house and he says, I'm going to send you to a land that I, that I have for you and for your people. Moses, God calls him out of Egypt and meets him at a burning bush. God moves towards him. David, God moves towards him. This is a theme all throughout scripture of God moving towards his people. And when we jump to the New Testament in John chapter 1, John chapter 1 verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I love what Eugene Peterson says in the message. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God moving towards us. We see in this passage, tax collectors and sinners, people on the fringe that nobody else wants to hang out with. And Jesus is moving toward them. I love a quote from an article that's called The Gospel and Moving Towards the Lost and Broken. And this is what it says. We have it on the screen for you just so you can follow along with me. It says, the incarnation is a story about God and infinite power and holiness moving toward us. And during the humiliation of becoming human, bound up in a body with hands, feet, and speech, living a common, ordinary life for 30 years. It's a movement from the glorious to the obscure, a journey of seeking us out. That movement continues throughout Jesus' life. He moves towards the unacceptable members of society like tax collectors and prostitutes. He moves towards women who were marginalized in a male-dominated culture. He moves towards blue-collar workers like fishermen. He moves towards outcasts who are sick or disabled. Check this out. Religion huddles up. It builds up hedges that define who is in and who is out, and it rigorously defends those boundaries. The gospel moves outward. God is on the move. And it reminds me of uh, a time in Baton Rouge. We lived in Baton Rouge, me and my wife and the girls. Uh, I was out for a run. We determined either I was golfing or I was running. I'm going to say I was running just so it sounds like... I'm a runner. Uh, as you can tell, I don't look like a runner. 
Uh, amen, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I was out for a run, right? And I get this phone call that, uh, from Maddie and says, Micah is in the shed and she cannot move. Her back is fr- like frozen up on her and she cannot move. And so I run home, right? I move towards her and I get there and she's literally like on her hands and knees and can't move. And so I have to pick her up, pack her in the house. And so you imagine she's like this, right? And I'm holding her, packing her into the house and I set her on the couch. And it was like for weeks, I would have to go and lay her in the bed at night to go to sleep. And then I would have to pick her up out of bed. And then I would have to set her on the couch. Then I would have to go put her in the shower. And then I would have to go put her on the potty, right? And I would have to do, I would have to do all of this stuff of moving her around, moving towards her. And this is what it reminded me this morning of God moving towards us in our brokenness, in our hurts, in our struggles. He sees us. He moved towards us. He carries us along. This is who he is. And this is why I believe it says in Romans 5 verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What I caught out of that passage there in Romans 5 is while we didn't have it all together, while we didn't have it all pretty and tidied up and our Sunday best on, God still moved towards us, demonstrating his love, Christ giving his life on the cross so that we can then be adopted into the family of God. This is what he does. He moves towards you and me and your neighbor and your family and our community. God is on the move. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The second thing that we have that we'll highlight today is space at the table. The first one is God is on the move. The second one is space at the table. When we look at the text from the day, we see that Jesus at the table with tax collectors and sinners. And oftentimes, if you read the Gospels, you find Jesus at the table with other people. We have a scripture on the screen. Matthew eleven nineteen says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus creating space at the table. Over a dozen times in the Gospels, it makes reference of Jesus eating and drinking with people. Over a dozen times. And in the first century Judaism, this is what would be called table fellowship. In his time period, this is what this would be called, table fellowship. See, for them and even for us, when we have someone into our house at our table, it automatically turns to an intimate setting. Would you agree? it automatically turns into something a little more intimate. This is what they call table fellowship, a little context about table fellowship. Uh, Food and sharing meals was a major issue in the first century, especially for the Pharisees. Uh, Table fellowship was an important aspect of social identity and participation in a shared meal marked by group identity. So whoever you had dinner with, Whoever you sat around the table with, you then identified with that person. And they then identified with you. This is table fellowship. 
Over the 341 rulings that go back to the Pharisees, 229 of them deal with table fellowship. It's an important thing in their day and age. And there was a German theologian, his name is Joachim Jeremiah. He says this about table fellowship. He said, Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all share in the blessing that the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. Can you see it's just more than eating together, right? He goes on to say, table fellowship was one unusual way of forming or celebrating a bond and a mutual welcoming or acceptance of guest and host. Table fellowship created a sense of union between guest and host. It had the potential to create boundaries between those welcome to the meal and those excluded from the meal. Table fellowship. Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, he describes their religious leaders as sharing a meal. So all the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, he said they would all share a meal together and nobody outside of that group was welcomed in. Nobody else could come to the table. And this is what we see. This is why Paul really uh, fusses at Peter in Galatians because this is what's happening. Galatians chapter 2, we have it on the screen for you. It says, when, when Cephas, which is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He's about to tell you why. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and do not live like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? The Jewish customs that he's talking about right there is the table fellowship. In the table fellowship, Jews couldn't eat with anybody else. You couldn't eat with Gentiles. You couldn't eat with tax collectors. You couldn't eat with sinners. You couldn't eat with prostitutes. Anybody on the fringe, anybody unclean, you couldn't eat with them. And so here is Peter sitting at the table eating with the Gentiles. And then other Jews show up and Peter says, whoop, let me go back over here. Leaves the Gentile group because somebody else is showing up afraid of what they might say or think. And Paul shows up and he says, you are not living in line with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is God moves towards those on the fringe and he makes space at the table. And Paul is calling them out on it here. This is why they hated Jesus. He ate with outsiders. He ate with those on the fringe of society. He ate with those that no one else would have contact with. Tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He ate with those far from God. Jesus is creating space at the table. And a quote that I read the other day that I absolutely love. Somebody said, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that food is one of God's love languages. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that food is one of God's love languages. 
eating and drinking with people far from God. Space at the table. And this is the question for me and for you this morning. Now I ask this question with no judgment, no guilt, no shame, no anything like that, right? Just an observation. When was the last time you had someone to your house at your table that wasn't a Christian? That wasn't a follower of Jesus? When was the last time somebody had you to their house at their table that wasn't a Christian? Was a non-believer, somebody far from God? Or to just like, even get out of the whole spiritualness of it. When was the last time you had someone to your table that looked different and talked different and thought different and voted different and believed different? See, what we tend to do is we tend to just want to hang out with people who look like us and talk like us and sound like us. And what happens is we end up, Christians end up hanging out with nothing but Christians. And you ask the question, you say, well, how many non-Christian friends do you have? And you're like, uh, one? Do we see Jesus doing this? Moving towards people that nobody else wanted anything to do with. Moving towards people who were unclean, far from God. Creating space at the table. To do what Jesus did means we move towards people and to do what Jesus did means we create space at the table for all people to come. Now this is the struggle for you introverts like myself. Having people into your house might be like, ooh, <laughs> that's invading my space, you know? Just uh, my encouragement, go for it. Just have one. Have one person over, right? And this is where, honestly, as I've prayed about this this week and went for walks down the canal road wondering when the water is going to come in, this is what stirred my heart this week. What if we brought back table fellowship the way Jesus did it? What if we at the Mustard Seed Church were known for radical hospitality? What kind of impact and difference would that make? There's a book that's uh, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I recommend you read it. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And there's a quote in the book that I absolutely love. And man, I, I want this to be our battle cry for the mustard seed. It says, radical ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. Check this out. Let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community gymnasium, or a garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. That's the gospel. That's what Paul was fussing at Peter about, saying, man, you're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. You're not making space at the table for all people to come and sit with you. This is the invitation to me and to you. And that's why I say there's no guilt or shame or judgment or anything like that because it's an invitation. The Lord is saying, hey, come and partner with me. Have your neighbor over to your house. No matter how mad, how mad you are about how they, their yard looks, right? Or their dog barking all the time in the middle of the night. Have them at your table. Create space at the table for all people 
to come. Moving towards people and creating space. Can we do this? Can we do this? Yeah. Think about it. What if, this, what if we were known for this? Radical hospitality. One of the things I loved when I was at the Durango Vineyard. Uh, how many years ago was that? Four years ago. When we were at church planting there. It was a small church of like ten people, right? Me and Micah and, and like four other couples or three other couples. And that was the church. And within two years, the church grew to like 200 people. And I remember walking in and asking, we would, every week we'd see somebody new come to the church. And I'm like, ah, how'd you hear about the Durango Vineyard? Oh man, so-and-so had me over to their house. And we ate this terrible lasagna. But then we just kind of talked about life. And I figured I'd come and check it out. Over and over again, that was the same response. How'd you hear about the Durango Vineyard? Oh man, so-and-so. We were barbecuing and smoking cigars. And they invited me to church. And that became the theme over and over and over again. Creating, there's something when you create space at the table that it's like you identify with this person and you say, hey, look, I'm a believer. You're not a believer. But I still love you. I'm still here. You're still my neighbor. Creating space at the table. So as we close, if we can have... Eden come up, the worship team. We're going to have some ministry time today, but I have some practicals for you. And the practical is pretty simple. Could you guess what it is? This week or next week, put it in your calendar. Have somebody over to your house that's not a believer. That's a non-Christian. Somebody moving afar from God. Have them over to your house. Create space at the table. Let's try to do what Jesus did. Right? What that means is you might have to call them up and say, hey, we'd love to have you over for dinner. What day works for you? Right? Moving towards people, creating space at the table. Some practicals for you within that. Take all the pressure off. Don't try to get them saved. Don't try to get them to say a prayer. Don't turn people into projects. Can we get an amen on that? Amen. Right? You're creating space at the table so you can identify with them and they with you. And I think this is what Jesus was talking about when he says that we are salt and light of the earth. That we just create space for people to get a taste of it and get a glimpse of it. And then there's something with them then that stirs up and a hunger comes up that they want to then have that conversation with you. It reminded me of uh, probably a couple of months ago, uh, I went to the brewery with some people who definitely weren't believers or Christians, rambled by and in junction with the brewery. And I invited them. I said, hey, let's go out for a beer sometime. And they're like, uh, like you get, I know they know that I'm a pastor. And so they probably thought that that was coming, you know. And so I'm like, hey, let's go for a beer sometime. And they're like, okay, I guess so, you know. So we get there, we get to Ramabine, and we sit down, and the very first thing they say, all right, Wayne, let me hear it. I'm like, hear what? Well, I know you're going to talk about Jesus. I'm like, I honestly just wanted to have a beer. The look on their face, really? 
I'm like, I honestly just want to know, have a beer, hear your story, get to know you a little more. Really? So we probably sat there for an hour just talking about them. Gosh, can I tell you this? When you give people space to talk, they will talk. Telling their story and their life and their upbringing and how at one point in time they were, they grew up Christian and they went to a Christian school and they went into high school and then it, it was like uh, suicide came in their life and all these troubles and struggles and they said, God, how can this all happen if you're real? And then left the faith. And then I realized, oh, this is why they thought I was going to come with the Jesus stuff. I just sat there and had beers with them. The thing that I love the most is towards the end of our get-together, there's was like, okay, I got a question for you. And I said, wait, this is you. This is you bringing the Jesus question. This is not me, you know? And it's like, no, I know, I know, but I got a question for you. And it just created space to, like, in an honest conversation, hear their struggle. And in some way to say, man, can, and then can I tell you this? Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. Well, what came first? Was it a, two million years ago the earth was created or 10,000, you know? A lot of times I'm like, you know what? I don't really know. Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. I always end up just pointing them back to Jesus. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I really don't know about creation, but I know what? I do believe God created you and me in his image. Always bring it back to Jesus. Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. All we want to do is create space at the table. Okay? So this week, man, find somebody in your neighborhood, your neighbor, a co-worker that doesn't know Jesus, that maybe is moving far from God, and just say, hey, we'd love to have enchiladas with you. Or whatever that might look like, whatever your favorite dish is. That sound good? Can we do that? This is my hope. Imagine, again, probably a hundred and odd people in here. Imagine if we were known for radical hospitality. Imagine if uh, more of the people that we hung out with and had to our homes and created space at the table didn't come to this church. Didn't grow up Christian. Don't know Jesus. Imagine what it was, I mean, just imagine for a little bit what God could do with that. That's my hope. Gosh, I get so excited about that kind of stuff. So would you stand with me? We're going to have some ministry time.